Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a great show for you today with Galen Kirkpatrick, a good friend of mine who has been at this game for a bit and has come all the way up through various aspects, SIV and towing people and uh, instructing and now guiding. And she's also been pretty fiercely competitive on the competition circuit. She did her first World Cup with me not too long ago in Axaray and in Turkey. Had a pretty crazy midair there, but actually had some great results in that one. And this last year has just taken off. She's up in the stratosphere. She's just doing so well at these competitions. beginning with a couple of comps right before the Worlds this last year out in Brazil in the Pan Ams and I think the British uh, had some great tasks there and then had a pretty interesting incident uh, not in the sky but on the ground uh, getting ready for the Worlds and uh, she would call it kind of a nervous breakdown so we get into that and the outcome of that and working with Maxine Bellman and as their coach at the Worlds and just creating kind of a whole new paradigm shift, a whole new, she calls a lore around her flying. And the results have been impressive since then. She was third overall in Chelan behind Russ Ogden and Matt Henze. She won the Red Rocks wide open, which put her in first place. US Nat- She's our new U.S. national champion, a new precedent there. And then she was just third down at the Monarca last month. Again, in the overall. So she's had some amazing results and is flying shit hot and uh, really has been impressive and inspiring to watch. So we get into all of that. Now it all started out in Santa Barbara, getting into flying and, and then getting into instructing and then getting into SIV and acro and all the things that have gotten to where she is. But mostly that's the mental switch. And we talk a lot about that. Great conversation with a great gal. Not a lot of with this one, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Galen, finally, how long have we been trying this? For four, five, six years? <laughs> Before you were famous, even. <laughs> oh, Gavin. Um, yeah, we've been trying to get together for four or five months since the yes, Red Rocks. since the Red Rocks. We have a lot to talk about, especially with your last year with just uh, the new national champion. You're wearing your medals there. I love it. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about how you got to this place, but let's let's dive into some background first. How did you get to this place? What, what was the give me the give me the resume version of Galen's flying career getting to this year? Yeah, I um, I started in Santa Barbara about six or I guess it was seven years ago now. So I actually did a one day lesson with Andy McRae up in Bozeman. And I was like, Andy, when am I going to get back here and learn how to fly properly? And he was like, you know what, you should just go to Eagle. It's close to where you live. And and then two weeks later, I was signed up for the P2 program. So Was it just the instant uh, hitch? Why did you, what was the catalyst? Why did you want to get into it in the first place? Was it just looking up in the sky or was this something you'd always wanted to do? You know, I've always wanted to fly and I got really close a couple of times to doing my private pilot's license and I'd always dreamed of free flight. I just thought it was the coolest thing. But I was never in the right position in my life and financially. And so I was 27 at the time. And it was just like, oh, I, this is the time. It's now. I got I wasn't super happy in life. I was living in downtown LA and I wasn't being outside much. And so it was just like a way to connect with this new medium and be out in nature and totally thrilling. And, and when yeah. you did the first stuff in Santa Barbara, which is a nice place to learn, you know, it's beautiful and the ocean and the mountains and the communities amazing there it was just instantly, I love this or was it scary or how, how, do you remember those first days? Yeah, no, it was instantly incredible. I was like, I was working like kind of a stressful high demand job. So I felt like in a life sense, I was really keyed in and 
yeah, and it was it was just a place for me to use that energy. And uh, I had incredible instructors. And uh, yeah, it was just instantly I was like, wow, this is incredible. There wasn't really much fear starting out because I didn't really know what I didn't sure. know. Ignorance um, of bliss. But that came that came along <laughs> as it does. And I, I know the answer to this because we were just talking about doing this show a couple weeks ago down in, in Columbia. But at some point you transitioned. You're one of the few. There's not a lot of people, I think, in the sport who also make their living from the sport. You are one of those people. When did that happen? When did you throw away old life and begin new life? Um, that happened about a year in. So I, I learned in Santa Barbara and spent a couple months like traveling up to Santa Barbara on my two weekends off every month and um, trying to get like thermic flights. And I ended up on a Columbia tour with Ego Paragliding my first winter, like three or four months into flying. And um, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I definitely am uh, very afraid and I need to like... Uh, become an expert at this listening to your podcast was really helpful while I would be stuck in LA traffic and so I kind of made the plan my first week in Columbia to work my job for another year and then quit and spend like five weeks in Columbia wow so it happened yeah about a year or year and a half into you five. dove in hard yeah <laughs> and you you began teaching at the training hill, right? You, you got into teaching and, and then towing and working with Dylan and uh, talk about some of that stuff, because I know it impacted a lot with the pilot you've become, you know, you're, you spent a lot of time still do acro, you know, and training acro and, and all that. Yeah, I, um, well, I was really gifted to have incredible P2 instructors. I had Mitch Riley and Dylan Benedetti also Brian Howell and um, Kevin and a couple guys, but especially Mitch and Dylan being such experts, it was super inspiring because I got to see what was possible in the sport. So yeah, I started working for Rob at the training hill, just driving the van. And I was super afraid to instruct because I didn't really know anything. And I was like, gosh, if I say the wrong thing to someone, it could be you know, devastating for them. And so eventually Dylan sort of like forced me to start instructing people. And, uh, and he tapped me to come out to the lake and I have some experience on boats. So I uh, dropped into the tow tech job really well and spending all that time um, at the lake, watching people, you know, do stuff to their wing and just being surrounded by paragliding was, uh, you know, I was immersed. So it was really helpful. You know, it wasn't necessarily time flying, but it was time thinking about paragliding, watching and visualizing and imagining. And, I, I've, I've asked quite a few. We've had a bunch of SIV instructors on the show over the years, Dylan and Jockey and many others. Uh, and I, I'd love to get your take on that, from both from being in the boat just seeing so many people go through the the sequences and the systems and and getting stuff out of it and also just your own take and because I know your own flying has been dictated a lot by acro and overcoming fear and I, I, before we before we move into this last year that's been phenomenal in your comp season I'd love to just get your take on that because it's still it was it was really interesting for me to hear. I've heard this from several SIV instructors that it's not really necessarily for everyone, and I find that pretty interesting, especially for flying cross country. You know, I can see that angle that it's not for everyone. I suppose the way I would think about that is that it's uh, everyone has their own personal risk tolerance or risk tolerance is an expression of self. And so some people are comfortable, you know, not really knowing what they need to do. And maybe if they're flying a passively safe wing in a really um, limited set of operating conditions, that's okay. Personally, I feel like having some standardized set um, and this probably comes from, you know, having Dylan as a, as a mentor of mine, but having some standardized set of things that people know, 
for example, the idea of requiring SIV for a P3 or a P4 introduces, I think, a control to what is otherwise kind of maybe a Yahoo or a loose cannon sort of sport. And so I think that's valuable. Certainly with my own clients, I want to know uh, who they did SIV with and what they've done at their experience with SIV. And, and for me, I was super afraid uh, for a really long time. And so I shunned the idea of being an acro pilot, but I was like, I need to spend all this time here to become a safe cross-country pilot because I'm, I'm really afraid. So I need to get this experience so that I can trust myself, so that I don't spend all this mental energy while I'm trying to fly cross-country dealing with the lack of trust in my skills. Um, so spending all that time at the lake, there was a couple occurrences that, could have, that I experienced that could have ended up in a reserve toss and didn't. And so uh, I credit all my time at the lake for that, you know, Dylan's mentorship and watching all those wings and watching what people did wrong, hauling people out of the water after they had done the wrong thing. And so by having these experiences where uh, things didn't go super well or my wing didn't stay open and then handling it the proper way, or the, the midair that I got into was another good example of that. You know, I just sort of did what I had practiced in my head a whole ton. And so that, that experience gave me confidence going forward that I would you know, do the right thing if, if something happened. Galen mentioned the midair there. We'll put some color on that. That was it. I believe that was your first world cup, correct? In Turkey, in Axeray. It was. Yeah. It yeah. A really good week. And I don't know if that was the last day, second to last day or something like that, but it was uh wild and somebody caught it on video. It was pretty hairy and really windy. It wasn't over when you hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a a harness that dirty. That was really impressive. (laughs) That cannibal was brown. My water water bladder burst that day just randomly. I was trying to shift weight around in my harness. So I put the drinking water underneath the seat. And when I landed it, three liters of water exploded everywhere. So then as we were getting dragged across the field, it all became mud. So, yeah, I was like in mud as I was trying to unbuckle and stop the dragging. It was, yeah, it was kind of, it was a whole nother thing. I'm not sure if this is a perfect tie, but you were just, you said some things that made me think of something I heard in a previous podcast you did with uh, an actual uh, a client of mine at one point in time, back when I ran the, the boat business. But tell me about willful ignorance. You had some really good things to say about that on that show, which I I thought were very applicable to what we do. Willful ignorance. Yeah, let's see. Well, I feel put on the spot here now. So, I mean, I think people don't necessarily want to think about what they're not good at. For example, this is a risky thing we're doing, like just like boats or mountaineering or anytime you go put yourself in a unforgiving environment you're some level of prepared and hopefully you're very prepared you probably think you're very prepared but it's and certainly having confidence in that environment is really important but i don't i don't know i guess you know we we are we tell ourselves that things are going to be okay and we're probably less likely to look at our weaknesses or things we could improve on because that might take away from confidence does that yeah, sound I mean, or do you have no an extra I, I, i've been thinking about this a lot lately because i one of my favorite people to follow on on social media which i, I try not to do too much social media but i really like following will gad because he he, uh, it's not just, Hey, look at me. Every, every post he does on there is some kind of technical skill to learn about ice climbing, which I'm not an ice climber, but I still find it fascinating. And, but he's, he always talks about risk. And I've said this on the show before. One of the things he taught me literally, I mean, the day before we did that Rockies traverse with the, the Red Bull film up in Canada, I didn't know. Well, we, we met the day before we went and did that. And so he was, you know, on the way to the first launch was kind of, who is this guy? He he likes to know who he's doing stuff with and we had just met. And so he was, he had pinned me right away for, as someone who was way too optimistic 
he, he, he hated that about me. And he, he said, you know, Gavin, I'm, I'm not even the guy that thinks that the, the glass is half full. I'm looking for what's going to break the fucking glass. And, and I thought, wow, man, you're really negative. And it's not negative. It's, it's this, it's the opposite of willful, willful ignorance. You know, he, he looks at these places, like you said, you're putting yourself into environments that are, that have risk and just inherent in them. And he's looking at what's going to go wrong here. That what's the, what's, what's possibly going to kill me. What can I eliminate from this equation that gives me better odds? You know, what's going to break the glass. And, um, it was a huge mind shift for me that I still struggle with, but it's an, it's, I think it's an important mind shift. You know, this whole, I think when you were talking about in the podcast, you were talking about that, the this thinking that it's not going to happen to you is, is bad thinking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also self-protective. Yeah. I mean, I can credit my instructors, you know, Dylan and, and Mitch, especially kind of knowing or hearing stories that you can die or you can get super injured if you're not careful. And I crashed into a tree in Parma park on my first mountain flight so um, by the time I got to the LZ, I was super gripped. I just didn't have the capacity to make wise decisions anymore. And I object fixated on a tree, hit the tree, kind of fell through the entire tree, landed on the ground with my wing above me. And I was fine. I didn't even have a bruise. I had a little scrape on my arm. And I landed right next to a barbed wire fence. And I so that was this experience, which right off the bat, I... Um, like kind of, kind of when I came down from the adrenaline of that, I was like, oh, that could have been so awful and I could have died. And so, you know, I, I basically thought about that a lot and it made me reflect on my, my life on the ground and it made me reflect uh, really uh, objectively on my own flying skill set and who I was as a person and how I undertook risk. And so that was... That was a formative thing going into pursuing expertise, immersing myself in the sport. And, and I certainly encourage, you know, my clients, anyone, P2 students, whoever, to think about that, you know. I think it's addressed non-directly a lot. It's like, oh, if you just had a breakup, don't go mm -hmm. flying. I think it's worth zooming out a little bit and thinking about like, you know, what's going on in your life? Are, what, what things in the past have you done that make you better at managing risk? What's your experience with that? What are times in any aspect of life that you've just been careless? Because um, you don't want to do that when you're mm. flying, hopefully. Mm. Yeah, that in that same conversation that I've got an arrow that goes down that's that you led that that kind of thinking leads you to two things. One, reducing risk as much as possible. And so with you, that was, you know, immersing yourself in instruction, SIV, making this your life, uh, learning as much as possible, you know, trying to get a grip on this fear maybe through increasing skill set. Do I have that right? Yeah. And then two, uh, you said, you should be happy in life. You, you very often do this. You draw you, you're, you're, you parallel from piloting and from the sport to your own personal life, which I love this about you, that you, you, you tie it all together. And I think often we kind of keep it in, sometimes we keep it in two separate boxes. We all pursue this, I hope, because it's fun and it makes us happy. And you know, that's why we should be doing it. Uh, but it, even in my mind, it's, it's, it's often kind of two separate things. You know, one of them is pretty intense and, uh, you know, I, I have often felt like I use it as an escape and I know that makes you go, no, we shouldn't be doing that. I've heard you say that we shouldn't be using this as an escape. Talk about that. There's some fun stuff there. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to tell, unless you're paying <laughs> me, I don't want to tell other people what to do. <laughs> Ah. like i i just sort of you know i i think people are just going to be themselves and i don't i don't want to concern myself too much like i have to shut out the mm. noise of you know what people think you should do but yeah i think it's different for everyone but for me it seemed obvious to you know use the lessons you've learned in life and apply them to flying and 
likewise, use the lessons you have in flying and let them apply to your life with some caveats, of course. But like if you're just if you want to get good quickly or being excellent is important for you, I don't know that seeing it as an escape from life is the way to do that. Now, certainly I have a joke where I'm like anyone who's gotten good at flying really quickly um, is running from Mm. something or is like, Mm. you know, avoiding something on the ground. And I think that's, that was certainly the case for me in some capacity, but, and perhaps for you as well. But I think it, I don't, I don't think it's one or the other. I mean, flying is still somewhat of an escape for me. You know, there have been times in my career where I feel like flying is easy and simple and being on the ground or living life uh, is difficult. And then other times when like being on the ground and living life is really easy and putting myself in that place of being present and performing a skill set is really difficult. And yeah, I, I think it's just good to be aware of that. And and at the the basis of really good piloting, I think, is self-awareness. It's not that hard. You know, flying a paraglider, pull, there's only, you know, three controls. You press the speed bar, you pull the right or the left brake. But putting all of the things it takes to, like, do cross-country or fly acro or even just fly at the ridge safely, you know, that's difficult. And so you need to, I think, be really aware of yourself and what patterns you have and when you shut off and what you do when you get stressed and even how you relate to other people, Hmm. you know? When did you get into comps? Um, I started doing comps maybe two and a half or three years into flying. Kind of like with Acro, I wasn't trying to be a comp pilot. I was just like, this is going to be the most efficient way to learn cross country. And yeah, so I did a sprint race at the Applegate my first year. It was just thrilling. Chris Garcia and I, we were working at Eagle together and we uh, went up and did the demo days. And then we, yeah, we did the sprint comp and it was totally a thrill. Mm -hmm. Good place to start. And when did you decide? And was that a kind of a natural progression? When did you decide to become the national champion? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I have a uh, I have a habit of questioning myself a whole lot, um, and maybe a, a problem of lacking self belief. And there was something that, uh, that Rob Sporer said to me uh, a year into my comp flying, uh, maybe, and he was like, you know, you could be incredible uh, someday. Uh, he might have said you could be national champion or world champion or something. He's like, but you need to start having an ego. For me, that, that was like risky. I was like, oh, no, no, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not arrogant. I don't have an ego. But I, I think it was through, A, really good performances, sometimes in tasks, and being encouraged uh, to keep going and needing to like prove something to myself that I could do it, that, yeah, that sort of led to that. And realistically, I, I think I told myself I could be national champion after the world championships last year, because I did the best flying of my career. I wasn't super consistent, but I, a couple of days I stuck with the lead gaggle all day. And even on the, the famous, I think it was task eight where uh, Maxime and Honoran escaped and the rest of the lead gaggle bombed out in between power lines and a big row of trees. I was like, I was right there with those two guys and they kept drifting and I, I just made this one little decision that was wrong, but I was like, okay, I, I, I can, can hang with them. I yeah. can do this. So if I can do this here, I can mm. go. So I just told myself that it was possible. I made a joke to someone. I was like, well, I'm just going to go win the national championship. And I forgot about it. And then he messaged me after I had, and he was like, Ooh, looks <laughs> like you did it. Good job. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I, 
I had some delusion that it was possible. And I think that's We talked about that down in Columbia, that you think it's important to, you know, delude yourself every once in a while. That's all right. If you don't believe something's possible, then it um, it definitely mm. isn't. You you don't want to have a bunch of expectation around it. But on my first task finished, the first time I made goal, I had been this was in Applegate and at uh, the sprint, and I had I had this big cascade right over the mountain, and uh, I was with the lead gaggle, and I cascaded down like eighteen hundred feet or something, Whoa. and managed not to throw my reserve. And then I was behind and I was like all rattled and I was like, what do I do now? And then I flew into the thermal, which had violently ejected me, you know, 2000 feet above. And I started thermaling again. And I was like, you know, I was like, well, it's still possible for me to catch up. And in fact, um, and maybe I wasn't telling myself that I was just like, well, I'm here to fly the task. And so I was a couple minutes behind and I saw the lead gaggle make this poor choice and so I was able to get higher and just glide straight to goal. And I think I got second that day or something like that after being five minutes behind in the last 70 or in the last 25% of the race. And so I realized it's like, it was possible, you, you know, it's, and that's what made it such an intriguing game to me is because something can happen that's not ideal falling out the back of the lead gaggle and then it's still possible for you to go like win the task potentially. Mm. You, you had a, a really interesting experience that I'd love to dive into that in, in some ways, timeline wise, at least it kind of predicated the success you've had this year. Uh, you went over to Spain before the worlds this year. So that was basically a year ago now. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you wanted to warm up at the, I don't know if that was a pre PWC or a PWC or whatever it was, but some event in Spain, you're going there to warm up and take it from there. Uh, you had a pretty interesting experience. I was there on the warm up day. It was a world cup and, uh, I was training the submarine. I kind of told myself that I needed to do this race to get used to the submarine before kind of to train for the world championships. And um, so I felt obligated in a way. And also I was coming off of, of the two comps in Brazil last April, where I had done the best flying of my career to the point, but I was inconsistent. Basically, I used two or two and a half drop days each comp. And, and especially the second one, the World Cup, the last day I was in really good position in the overall rankings. And I just, I put so much pressure on myself that I totally messed it up and I was so hard on myself, you know, landed and cried and just felt awful. And so basically those experiences, the last time I had been racing of like doing the best, but also putting myself under so much pressure colored that flight on the training day in Spain and I launched and I was in this new position and the submarine all bundled up and there was just a sea of olive trees not very many landings and I basically just like couldn't fly I mean I could go in circles and I think I went and tagged the first turn point or two and then I was just like I cannot do this and I landed and just completely broke down yeah, I I mean, I call it a nervous breakdown, but I don't know, people that have other sorts of nervous breakdowns might say, well, that's not a nervous breakdown. But I basically just, yeah, I couldn't hold it together. I was looking at tickets home. I was thinking, gosh, I can't be part of this world's team. I don't even want to fly. I didn't want to look at a paraglider. I've organized my life around this for so long. And I can't even, it was, it was mm. awful. So yeah, some friends came and um, talked me down and I was, I was staying in a cave and uh, it was like an Airbnb cave and I couldn't stand up and I was like, and it was dark and there was no windows and um, they were like, we're going to bring you with us. Like you come stay with us. So I, they stole me away, brought me to an olive plantation house that they were living in and they uh, and I just stayed there for four days and I didn't leave and I 
dropped out of the race and I, I watched the race come overhead and I remember looking up and kind of giggling and being like, oh, I recognize that person and that person. And But having no, just being completely estranged from the concept of, of pilotage. Um, and yeah, it was really alarming and, you know, kind of terrifying. But being inside, sitting on the couch, I was reading like, a book a day and I just sort of like I just couldn't be in a position where I put pressure on myself and and I was putting an undue unfair unreasonable amount of pressure on myself I wasn't having any mm. fun and how'd you how'd you course correct um well you know Evan and Emily that's who rescued me they you know basically I was chatting with folks on the team. I was trying to still go to the worlds, maybe not fly. I basically did a ton of self-reflecting in that space that wasn't flying. I mean, I needed to get my head straight on the ground. We as a team had hired Maxime Bellamin, who's uh, like kind of my flying guru. I love his books and just the sort of approach mentally and preparation that he takes. And uh, so I, I called him up and he gave me some tips, but really it was opening myself up, being vulnerable with someone that I really respected that basically forced me to self-reflect and be like, oh, I am a good pilot. I am doing this for fun. I am a safe pilot and I put way too much pressure on myself. So I need to be realistic with myself. He, um, I had answered this questionnaire that he had sent us prior to working together, and I had rated myself really low on a bunch of fundamental skills. And he kind of challenged me on that, and he said, "You're definitely not a three out of five on thermaline. Like, what, what is that?" And he actually called me delusional to say, like, to assess myself as three out of five, and. That was super helpful because I, you know, I mean, there's the delusion believing you can win, but there's also the delusion believing you're not good enough and or you don't have skills. And, and so he challenged me on that. He was like, why? Why did you say three out of five? And, and I was kind of like I came up blank and I was like, because I have a lot more to learn because I want to leave room for improvement. And. And he's like, if you were at a three out of five, it would, you know, you, you wouldn't be saying that, um, you know, if you can keep up with the people you can keep up with, you're not a three out of five. So you need to be realistic so that you can go out there and express yourself and, and do what you're capable of doing. You need to have self-belief. And so I hid from the world for another four days in Interlochen. And then I grouped up with the world's team and I basically changed my whole, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go out and fly. I've done all this work to be at this point to qualify for the world's and I'm going to go out and have fun. And I'm going to ask myself at every point, am I having fun? And how could I be having fun? Would it be more fun to be on the ground? That created the biggest change in all of my flying because I had to be accountable to myself and decide, yes, this is fun. I want to make the fun decision here. And, and only once, I mean, when I instituted this, this process of asking myself if it's fun, I was like, gosh, it might mean that I'm just like not flying the task. I'm just going to go land. And since then, um, I had one task, uh, it was at the Worlds, where I was in this nasty spot I shouldn't have been, and uh, the guy right next to me threw his reserve, and, and I was like, ah, you know, this isn't fun, I'm not having fun, and so I just went and landed, and it was this really excellent experience for me, because usually when I'd land in a task, I would beat myself up, and I'd be like, oh, you made this mistake, and this mistake, and I would obsess over what I could have done differently or how I could have performed uh, my skill set better. And there I just was there and I was looking up at the pilot on the mountain in the trees. And I was like, well, I am here on the ground, but I'm fine. I'm having fun. I'm in France at the Worlds and I could be there, but I'm not. 
And so I like, I sort of created the safe space mm. for me, for myself. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> and then after that, yeah. I've, and since then I've been able to, I'm not actively doing it so much anymore. Uh, asking myself if it's fun. I'm just, it's part of my preparation. I just realize what is going to be fun and, and what about flying is fun and it's being with all my friends and it's performing a skill set and expressing myself and the beautiful views and and I, you know and I don't I don't need to beat myself up flying has to be especially uh competition flying task flying it has to be an emotionally safe place for me you know if the if the worst possible scenario is me beating myself up, because the real worst worst case scenario is getting really injured or dying. But if the worst, you know, possible scenario is me being really, really hard on myself, then I can't go out and be creative and have fun and get to look over at my friends and, you know, do thumbs up or hoot and holler at them. So uh, I kind of completely changed my mindset and like Maxime encouraged me to like I have a confidence now I believe it's possible I I believe that I can go win a task or I can keep up with the best pilots I'm curious do you, when when he asked you that and you rated yourself three out of five too too low was that because it would have been arrogant to put what you really were or did you really not believe that you were i yeah so it was delusional to say i was three out of five and and basically and this is sort of this new concept but there's a aviation aphorism uh, confidence is an asset and arrogance is a liability and so i think i think actually a lot of people in general in life and in flying confuse uh, confidence with arrogance and so they're not going to be confident so yeah I, I would have answered four uh, or four and a half out of five but that felt like a I was shortchanging myself so I was saying "Ooh, there's only this little bit of improvement and sometimes I'm only three out of five like oof, that last task in Brazil I was maybe a one out of five like I, I just couldn't hang so yeah I felt like it would have been delusional or excuse me it would have been maybe arrogant and it would have shortchanged how much i had to learn but yeah i've i've stopped doing that i've stopped confusing arrogant or confidence with arrogance because i'm not an arrogant person but i aspire to be a more confident person it sounds like there's I mean, there's a few things here that actually, and some of this isn't for me, it's from you. And we talked down in Columbia a week and a half ago, but you, you talk about, you kind of created a new story for yourself. It's a new, new lore. I love that word. And, and you've also mentioned safety quite a few times, but more emotional safety. Uh, you know, that you, you, I think you also said that, you know, you feel like comp flying is actually really safe. It's a really safe thing for you to do. If you've created, you know, once you created this new story, is it, do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just want to, you know, I, I've flown a lot of comps in the last couple of years and I'm drawn to comp flying, I think because it's kind of structured and not particularly adventurous. I've been dealing with enough stuff the last couple of years, like on the ground and in life that, that going and having this sort of going to do a sort of flying that doesn't require the like need for adventure. I mean, I love it. I flew tons in Colombia and I, I am excited to do more adventure flying, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I needed that having a bunch of people there uh, around me, having everyone flying the same route, having people watching out for you, that all gave me this like sense of, confidence and allowed me to like not worry about uh what what could mm. happen what could mm. happen so yeah let's see you asked a couple questions there well maybe. i i just want to make sure i had that right i mean i, I loved this that you've kind of created a new lore uh, for yourself you know a new yeah. and it i i always 
feel people like honor and, and Maxime and Josh Cohn and, you know, they, they, they've kind of, they've cracked the code, right? They, they, there, there are certain myths that you turn into facts and you, 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 like you said, when you're, when you're racing, well, it's actually quite easy. Uh, when you're in position, you're not making a lot of decisions. You're, you're, you're just in flow. You're smiling. It's, it's easy. It, it it's kind of working out. And it seemed like this event that you went through in Spain and working with Maxime and, <clears throat> and coming out the other side and kind of creating a new story for yourself. Uh, you know, since then you, you, you did remarkably, you had some remarkably good days at the worlds. You, know, you got third at then Chelan behind Russ Ogden and Matt Hensey, who were both flying really lights out. Uh, and you were, I've, I looked up at you the whole week. I mean, you were just in position and then you won the wide open, uh, set an incredible precedent there. And you're our new national champion because of our, those two, amazing results uh the hell of a year and one that you know most people who spend a lot of time at comps will never experience and so uh my question is was is wasn't even a question it's just this it seems like you've you've created this new model and uh the more you can share about it the better it's that's fantastic i i mean <laughs> it's it's uh you, know, you 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 did it quite in some ways quite quickly you know your 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 first world cup was uh in turkey i was at that one with you that was 21 22 wasn't that long ago <laughs> yeah i think it was yeah it was 21. yeah fall of 21 you're right so yeah i just think i mean I knew uh, having having some good task finishes. I had a one good task finish in in Turkey. Uh, we were flying all day together, actually. So I guess I feel like in, in that that day, I think I got top five, and I was on a serial class wing. But I I think I just sort of stumbled into it. I just had this self belief. I had no expectation on myself, and I was like, "Gosh, well, these people know what they're doing, so I'm gonna." follow along with them and imitate but and play by the rules that I, you know, learned in, in the books, perform this skill set. I was kind of removed from it, uh, my ego and like I just just like, okay, I'll I'll just go try. And then it worked out really well. And so I think that gave me this like sense of confidence or possibility and instilled the delusion. Gosh. I can do this one day, so I can do it six and a half out of, or five and a half out of seven days. And and I had a couple really good comps in Brazil, a World Cup and uh, the Pan Americans following that recently, or um, following that first World Cup. And I had no expectation on myself. I was into the imitation game. I trusted myself. I, my ego was removed from it pretty much. And I flew really well, almost like very consistently also and had great results. So I like it was, I think I, I knew it was possible, but I think I started to place all this expectation mm. on myself. And I started instead of zooming out and being like, oh, gosh, what did I do that week that worked and that didn't work? I was obsessing over each little decision and and so that is what led to the the putting too much pressure on myself and there was no there was no mental power mm. left for just going out and flying because I was obsessing, ooh, is this the right choice or the wrong choice? Is this a high chance or a high probability option or a low probability option? And and so with that sort of breakdown and feeling like super estranged from flying and then re-entering. And I I had some good results at the Worlds, but I was tender. I was like, each day I was like, do, do I want to fly today, you know? And do I belong here? And I mean, I was, I was just being so gentle with myself and just focusing on the, the connections I had with my teammates and the fun of it. 
that that experience of seeing what making it fun and just going out and performing allowed me to believe in myself and even in the moments in Chelan and in Red Rocks when I was like alone or had made a mistake instead of you know basically I just didn't care I was like gosh well I I did well at the Worlds Uh, you know I had some good flights I, I am a good pilot sometimes and I like this so I'm just going to keep going. And, and that freed up so much mental energy for, you know, just staying in a good position. And, and like, it felt like this process that just reinforced itself because if I'm going out and trying to have fun and I'm trying to have a nice finish, the best way to do that is to um, stay in a good position and not be stressed, not be low, um, make high chance options, and just kind of trust myself. And I think as much as you try to, I don't know, there's just so much feeling and intuition involved in flying and hunting cores and trying ideas or hypotheses out that I guess I felt like, or I feel like now, my flying is really creative. I don't, I don't think you can be creative and, and artists will probably attest to this but i don't think you can be creative if you're really afraid of making a bad product Mm. i i feel this with my own writing is like i start to put things on the page and then i go oh that's awful you know and then instead of not caring and just continuing to write you just like stop or you feel discouraged from continuing to be creative it's vulnerable and so while it's a completely different sort of creativity that's required in flying i think the same sort of philosophy applies you know it has to be like you said an emotionally safe place to try and fail or try and succeed Mm -hmm. and yeah it's worked out really well you know i still make mistakes i i had one finish on the monarca that i just landed and i was super frustrated because I had been kind of fighting with Manuel all day and I had gotten stuck on the south end of Mordor. And then at the end of the day, you and a few others, Farmer, you guys just came and flew over my head. And I was just like emotionally exhausted. I wasn't putting too much pressure on myself, but it was this emotional exhaustion from not just flying, but from kind of like fighting Mm. and being really, and like trying to, um, trying to Mm. win. So I don't see that as a failure, um, but I landed and I got really emotional and I was frustrated. And so I had to just like be like, okay, cool. Well, you still had a great finish and you had fun and you got to practice these things. And, you know, there wasn't, there was still emotional involvement and I was still really frustrated, but I wasn't beating myself Mm. up at all. I was just like, okay, cool. Throw it out, reset, you know, tomorrow Mm. I'll try again. And, um, yeah. You you're you're leaving here pretty shortly for the super final, which we weren't gonna go to and decided to go to. Uh I'd love the you you've had some repetition now with Chelan, Wide Open, Menarca, all really good results. What's the lore you operate around now going to the super final? How do you find this space? How do you find this emotional space that's working so well? How do you how do you repeat this? Is I have found that hard to to this really works. Just do that again. It's not quite, at least for me, it's not quite that easy. I, I mean, when you're saying, you know, I, I love when you're having fun, things work. And so it's one thing to say, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to have fun. But sometimes our egos get in the way of that. At least they do with me. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the one the one thing that makes me think before I answer your question is like, you know, what is your level of self-awareness when you have a really good result or performance? I, I felt that in Chelan, I would just hearken back to the emotional journey I went on that May of dropping out of a competition and, you know, suffering and you know and then coming back being really gentle with myself being able to perform well at the worlds so that was all in really recent memory and I was like okay well I'm just gonna 
do my best to replicate that. And if I had been, I guess I think probably in Brazil, I wasn't being particularly self-aware. And so then when I went to go fly again, I was, despite having some great results in recent history, I was unable to replicate or even fly. And so having that added level or higher level of self-awareness that I had at the Worlds as like understanding myself, I just took that and I sort of replicated Mm. it. You know, I think we're all learning to be more self-aware, especially in comp flying about our decision-making, about how competitive we're being, about how we're interacting with all our other pilots and what self we're bringing to it you know, you just do it sort of one day at a time and you realize it's a really long game and you forgive little mistakes. And I did the same thing at Monroe. I was like, gosh, am I? Because I was like, there's a possibility that I could win the national championship. You know, I need to beat this person and do well enough, but is it even possible? And, and I was just like, okay, well, I'll just be tender with myself, be really self-aware play in this and I had the same thing in Monarca. I was like, gosh, well I've had a couple of good results, but you know, can I continue it? And I just I like kind of hearken back to this be gentle with yourself. You belong here. You know what you're doing. And so you know, those are all nationals levels comps. So I think there's a piece of uh foregoing expectation that's maybe easier at the super final mm. i did my super, first super final in Valle last year you were there and um you flew really well every day and then kind of had issues with the end and and i remember going into it with no expectation and i think i was 40 minutes slow on the first day and then 30 minutes slow for a couple days and then 20 minutes slow and then I was starting to basically I was just, you know, building on building on what I had experienced and so for this I'm just, you know, I feel like I have a great 6 or 8 or 10 months of flying to draw on and I was really tender and gentle with myself and self-aware during that flying, but I'm also going with um, you know, 120 pilots that fly faster or as fast as the leaders on any of those competitions that I've done this year. So I kind of all expectations off, just go have fun, feel privileged to be there and, and trust the, like trust the Galen that got me here, that qualified me for the super final. Mm-hmm. She'll, um, she'll like, you know, be there for you and you just go out and have fun. But I've been thinking about it a ton. Every day, I'm just like, I'm visualizing that sort of mental process of just, you know, I'm here. I I get to be here. So just go have fun and don't get competitive. We're going to do a show specifically with you all, you and and Violetta and Alexia and and Jenny, hopefully before the Super Final. So those of you listening, I'm kind of alluded to that. We're going to try to make that happen before uh, you guys get going on that race. So we'll learn more about this. But two things I want to talk about is this momentum that you women have right now and and what has sparked that. And like I said, we're going to do a whole show on that, but I'd love for you to talk about it because it is really thrilling. And then the other thing I would love to talk about is, is I see you as kind of the pivotal member uh, in our community that has sparked all this. I'm quite new to the party side of of our competitions in the U.S. Uh, and Violetta to thank for that. At the not this wide open, but the one before. But there's kind of an amazing thing going on, at least from my perspective, uh, with the U.S. comp scene. And, you know, we saw it loud and proud at Menarca, you know, with nine out of the top 10 there being U.S. pilots. That's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I'd love for you to just talk about those two things uh, as much as you want to right now, because it's, it's, there, there's something happening with our community that is really exciting to be a part of. And, uh, and I think you've been 
<laughs> you're kind of the leader there. You're the one that's that's made it happen. I mean, that, oh. of course, it's a community effort, but it's I, I really uh, it's it it has been a beautiful thing. And I mean, beautiful in a lot of different ways there, that word encompasses a lot, but it's been a beautiful thing to be a part of and to witness and to see this kind of sea change really in our community. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call myself a pivotal <laughs> member of anything because that would be arrogant. <laughs> You're a 4.8 out of 5. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm a three out of five. With the women's team thing, it's it's really been Violetta who, um, you know, she's been a huge supporter of me. She's an incredible person. She's an incredible pilot. And we, uh, post-pandemic, we both started just doing loads of comps. We basically were able to qualify for World Cups. And so we got really close and we've been there for each other as we figure out how to fly as best as we possibly can. And so then also with uh, Alexia and Jenny, who are a little bit newer or who have done less races, but are also just doing incredible on the world stage and giving the U.S. women maybe a little bit of a reputation, which I've heard about, it's, it's really cool. And I think where we're at is as we start to organize and work together, and this is just in its infancy, we all, you know, you talk about it all the time on the show of the, the French teamwork and camaraderie, and you've alluded a ton, and it's just a reality that there is somewhat of a cowboy nature to U.S. flying, U.S. comp flying and pilots. And so I feel like at least Violetta and I have come up through that system of where it's, it's been sort of everyone for themselves and there hasn't been this emphasis on working together and gosh, you know, except for maybe the five or 10 best pilots in the world, everyone else and comp flying in general is it's, you have to work together it's that's your ability to work together will make or break your comp flying so we came up through this and and i think alexia and jenny also have become incredible pilots on their own so independently we've found this vein of performance that we're able to um, tap into and so what we're doing is trying to not replicate what the French have or what any team and Macedonia has an incredible team rapport. The Germans have, you know, we're trying to say, well, gosh, if we got here on our own, what could we do if we're working together or if we support each other? You know, if we want to see each other or if we want to share a podium together, the overall podium that is, what can we do to support that? How can we? Uh, lift each other up and support each other and so again this is in its infancy we did a couple days of of flying together we're learning how to communicate with each other and trust each other yeah it's just really exciting because each woman brings something really different to the team we've all struggled in different ways to get good really quickly and We've all faced different challenges in our ground life that have led us to be able to do this. And and we all have a lot of love and respect for each other. So it's like, gosh, if we incorporate and support each other, what's possible? And it feels like, you know, the, it's just exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're excited to be on the podcast. And, and then I, uh, the, the second question you asked, was that about the, the parties or the, sort of the U.S. comp scene being more cohesive of a community? Maybe even more than that, yeah. It, it seems like there there's something that has shifted in our community that has aspired and inspired results and performance and stoke and desire. And, you know, there's for the first time in ages, there's young people coming into the sport that are really good really fast and uh you know there it's and it seems to me that the one bit of glue there uh, the stick is the 
parties at the end of the comp. You know, you share this pretty radical experience during the week. You know, you're all kind of throwing it out there a bit and, and then you get to hug it out for a night. And, um, I don't know, am I putting too much on it or it just seems like that's, uh, a big part of the collective success. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I think there's so much talk in comp flying or in task flying of, of working together. And especially when, but you know, before you're going off to make your own decisions, you're working together with a group of people. And I, I think I, I, I see comp flying or task flying as a social game primarily. Almost everyone has a similar set of knowledge and a similar set of skills. There's very little that separates that, but it's your ability to interact with others. And so I guess I think knowing that you're going to get to hang out and hug all your friends on the last night of the comp or that having that experience of, of loving them, of loving the people that you're racing with and supporting them is it's only going to make you better at flying you know it's it's like being part of a community and having shared goals and there's also i think you know there's there's that sort of but but there's also just that a lot of u.s pilots have done a lot of high level racing across the world in the last couple years and so we know each other a lot better and we know the sort of choices that we're going to make and we feel mm. supported. You know, if you're flying in a gaggle of people and you're fighting every single one of them, that's a lot of extra energy and only so much can be achieved with, you know, egotistical, ruthless competitiveness. Mm. And and maybe that's what it takes to be a world champion. Or, or to fly at the very best or to get first place every day. I don't know, but, but certainly to fly really, really well, you can, you know, you don't, you don't want to be wasting energy on feeling at odds with people. And I think being yourself and, you know, letting your freak flag fly is really important. I know you're a big fan of that. <laughs> um, and if, if there's anything that I serve as a pivotal example of it's maybe just like fully realizing yourself and being yourself in the face of um, dissenting voices or, or just existing, you know, it's existing as an art and living life, life is art. And so I, I'm hesitant to say this about myself, but I also, I think, or I've heard from people that, they they look up to me in being myself and they feel a permission to also be mm. themselves, which if you're going out to express yourself or to express a skill set that you have is really important. Mm. I've looked up to a lot of pilots who are very much themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a mutual love and respect we have for each other. And that's a very nice place to end. Galen, you're a treasure. Thank you very much for sharing all of this. I uh, wish you the best of luck at the super final with the gals. I can't wait to watch. It's going to be really exciting. You guys are all kind of hitting this incredible peak right now, which is really fun. But thank you. Thank you so much, Gavin. Yeah, uh, we'll miss you there, but uh, we'll look forward to talking again. Perfect. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. A lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it would be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that 
uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.